Uh, if you're our guest with us this morning, uh, once again, wanted to just say how glad we are that you've joined us. And uh, it's probably, it probably would make sense for me to just explain how we typically do things on Sunday mornings here at Indian Creek Baptist Church. Typically, we walk paragraph by paragraph through a book of the Bible, and that's what we've been doing these last uh, several months through Paul's first canonical letter to the Corinthians. And we, a few weeks ago, uh, ended up in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, if you can imagine, how many of you are hikers, you enjoy hiking? Anybody in here? Hiking is great. You've got to try it. Okay, so imagine you're hiking, and you're walking along a a well-worn path, and what happens so often when we're hiking is you come to a point in the trail where a gigantic tree has fallen across the path. Has this ever happened to you? And uh, what happens when we're studying paragraph by paragraph through a book of the Bible is there are times when a modern question, a a question that we have that the biblical writers didn't necessarily have, uh, sort of falls across the path. And that's what's taken place here in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. A question that we deal with, that Paul didn't directly deal with in his day, has sort of fallen like a tree across our path. And so we can do one of two things. We can climb over the tree, and that's fine. Sometimes we do that. Uh, but in this particular case, I felt after, after getting into it a little bit last week, that we should really get the chainsaws out and chop up the tree and uh, deal with this modern question before we move on on the path. Okay, so I hope that helps you understand where we're at uh, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read uh, just a few verses, and then we'll pray and get into the message. Uh, Let's go ahead and read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The apostle says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, excuse me, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are eager to hear what your word has to say about the questions uh, that we deal with in our lives. And we're eager to hear what you have to say about the question we're going to deal with this morning. We want to know your will. We want to know your opinion, not the opinions of a preacher, not the opinions of a guy on the internet, but the opinions of the Lord God. And so, Father, sometimes it's difficult to parse through what the difference is. And so I ask that you would give us wisdom this morning to do that. Help us to see what your thoughts are and align ours with your own. Father, we also want to pause and pray for our ministry partners. I think especially right now of uh, those uh, members of our congregation who are not able to attend church Uh, because they're homebound or in a nursing home due to their physical health. Father, I just ask that you would pour out your peace and help these brothers and sisters to know your presence today. And I ask that you would give them encouragement and assurance 
that you would gather your people around them in the times when we're able to be with them, and that you would bless them with your wonderful grace this morning. I also want to continue to lift up Pastor Guy as he continues to travel in West Africa, and I ask that you would bless his ministry with fruitful uh, results, and that you would keep him safe and healthy as he returns home later. Father, we ask all these things in the name of your Son, and we trust in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. The story is told about an old preacher who had settled it in his own mind that it's a sin to watch movies in the movie theater. The old man had made his thoughts clear on the matter, but he knew that his kids and his grandkids were going to think for themselves and come to their own conclusions, and it just so happens that his son decided to raise his own kids a little differently. Well, one day, when all the kids and grandkids were gathered at the old man's house for a holiday, Christmas or Thanksgiving or something like that, his son decided that, hey, I'm going to go take all the grandkids to a movie. In spite, of his granddad, in spite of granddad's scruples. And so they left, and after a few hours, they returned, and everybody pitched in, and they started getting ready for supper, and it was just part of life, and as you know, uh, that's life in an extended family. Well, the old man was just brooding, just scowling, really upset, silent, uncharacteristically so. Finally, his son couldn't take it anymore, and he decided to confront his dad. Dad, what's your problem? You know we don't agree about this. What is the big deal? The old preacher just frowned. How could you do this, he said. Exasperated, his son threw up his hands and yelled, Why are you making such a big thing about going to see a movie about some cartoon puppies? The old man stopped and looked angrily into his son's eyes. Without raising his voice, through his teeth, he voiced his disappointment and disgust. How could you take my grandchildren to see a film called 101 Damnations? (laughs) Christians sometimes get sideways with one another. And a lot of those times... Not always, but a lot of times. The reason we get sideways with one another is because of a breakdown in communication, because of a misunderstanding. Because the things that I'm saying and the things that you're hearing are two different things, or vice versa. There are a few topics in the Bible where that's more likely to happen than the one that we began to speak about last week, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There is a lot of heat A lot of heated arguments about that particular topic. And before we continue on in our study of 1 Corinthians, I feel we need to address a question that really wasn't on Paul's mind during his day, but that modern churches wrestle mightily with. I think theologian Dr. Wayne Grudem phrased the question best when he asks, Are all the gifts mentioned in the New Testament valid for use in the church today? That's an important question, isn't it? All of the gifts, all of them, prophecy, the working of miracles, speaking in tongues, are all of those gifts mentioned in the New Testament valid for use in the church today? Let me reread the list that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 12, and keep in mind, this is just one 
of the list that Paul gives in his letters. It's not exhaustive. These are just examples. He says, To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Are all these gifts still available and in use by the church today? This is a critically important question for a variety of of reasons. Uh, Sadly, the way that Christians have answered this question has fomented a lot of disunity in the church. And some of you have experienced that personally, or you've seen that in other churches of of which you've been a part. Uh, One of my duties as a pastor is to protect the unity of the local church. And if we deal with the topic of spiritual gifts, but we don't give this question enough attention, there's like an open door of vulnerability to disunity. And I really don't want to leave that door wide open. I want to address it. Faithful brothers don't necessarily all agree in how they answer this one question. That doesn't necessarily mean that one or both are are the enemies of God. No, faithful people who love the Lord, who love the work of the Holy Spirit, who want to see God glorified in the church, fall on different sides of this particular issue. And one day we'll learn all sorts of ways in which our beliefs on these second and third tier issues were incorrect. Now, if I knew what those issues were for me, I would just change my mind, okay? But I don't know what those issues are. I just know that eventually, I'm sure, I will learn that I've been wrong about this or that thing. You have it on record. I admitted that. Uh, I know that that's going to happen, and the same is true for every Christian. So we need to address the reality that these uh, questions, they can cause disunity in the church, and we want to protect the unity of the local church. Another reason this is an important question is because our enemy, the devil, sees it as a vulnerability in your life and in my life and in the life of our church. I mean, think about the schemes of Satan. He would love nothing more than for you to think that the work of the Holy Spirit is actually the work of demons. And he would love nothing more than for you to think that the work of demons is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. He sees this vulnerability, and so he tries to trick you. He wants to deceive you. So this is one of those questions where we need to take not just one or two passages of Scripture. We need to take this question and bring it to the whole Bible and ask ourselves, what does the whole Bible say about this particular question? Well, historically, there have been basically two common answers to this question. On the one hand, many have asserted that while some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in use today, miraculous gifts ceased when the New Testament was completed and the apostles passed from the scene. This position is called cessationism because the emphasis is on the notion that the miraculous gifts, such as speaking in tongues, have ceased. Cease, cessation, cessationism, okay? So that's what this particular position is called. Cessationists often point out from passages like 1 Corinthians 13, 8, that Paul says right there in the text that the gift of tongues is going to cease. It's going to be cut off. And they argue that Paul is speaking about the time when the New Testament is completed. He says when the perfect comes, and in their mind that's the completion of the New Testament, 
uh, the imperfect is going to be done away with, uh, namely the gifts of tongues and prophecy and other similar gifts. Cessationists also point out that many examples of tongues or healing ministry in the world today involve abuse or fakery, and we have to admit that this is the case. Shysters on TV tell you that if you send them $100 or $1,000, that they are going to heal you of whatever disease you have. That's not valid, okay? That's not somebody that has your best interests in mind. If somebody's jet-setting around the country in this... uh, you know, Learjet, and he's living in multi-million dollar mansions, and he tells you you need to send him money in order for him to heal you, do not listen to someone like that. Another concern for cessationists is the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible. The reason that if a believer were to receive a prophetic impression from the Holy Spirit today, that would essentially involve adding to the Bible. Because if the Lord is speaking to you, that's the Word of God, and so therefore that must be on par with Scripture. And they would say, since the Bible is complete, it would be wrong to conclude that any such impression is from the Lord. Now, I'm really, really simplifying this position, and we don't have time to get into all the nuances of it. So if you want to find out more, I think probably the most capable defender of this viewpoint is a pastor by the name of Dr. John MacArthur, a longtime pastor of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. He and other people in his orbit have presented a lot of information about this position, and if you want to read more about it, you can do that. Just look him up on the internet and you'll find more. So that's cessationism. Very common view. Miraculous gifts ceased when the New Testament was completed. But the other side of the spectrum Uh, There are Christians who say, no, miraculous gifts continue in use today. They haven't ceased. The Holy Spirit continues to give believers uh, the gift of prophecy or tongues or even healing. This view is called the continuationist view uh, for obvious reasons. The gifts continue today. Some version of this view was, excuse me, was modeled in the early 20th century by Pentecostal denominations Uh, But it actually gathered a lot of momentum and steam in the early 1960s with the charismatic movement and spread out into other denominations. And then in the 1990s, and uh, certainly by the early 2000s, even mainstream evangelicals and Southern Baptists began to skew more toward continuationism. Basically, continuationists don't see any biblical warrant for the view that these gifts have ceased. They read the passages cited by the cessationists, and they say, okay, I read the passage, but I just don't see it the way that you're seeing it. I don't read it that way. I don't understand it that way. It's safe to say that most continuationists would also denounce the abuses of prosperity preachers who fly around the country and live in their big mansions. They don't want that either. They would say, though, instead of just throwing out all of it, let's deal with the abuses. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater Don't reject the gifts that truly come from the Holy Spirit because of a few charlatans who take advantage of the gullible. Now, there are a lot of Christians who uh, embrace some form of continuationism. I'm not really sure I know which pastor is like the most influential proponent of this, but the most uh, capable defenders of this view that I've come across would either be theologian Wayne Grudem or a pastor, a retired pastor from Oklahoma City, a man by the name of Sam Storms. Uh, If you look either either of those guys up on the internet, you'll find out more information about this particular view. 
So those are the two main positions that Christians have historically embraced. And I think it's important to say at this point that while there are extreme examples like on either side of the issue, there are people over here who are extremely divisive in their embracing of cessationism. And there are people on this side who are just unbiblical in their embracing of their idea of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Here in the middle, there are good people on either side who love the Lord but happen to disagree on this question. It is an important disagreement, but it's not a disagreement between enemies. It's a disagreement between brothers. But the question really is not what do Christians believe. The question is what does the Bible say in answer to this question? Are all the gifts valid for use today? What does the Bible say? Well, in the time remaining, I want us to offer up a series of assertions from Scripture that I believe arise out of the teachings of the Bible. And I want to show you where I'm getting those conclusions so that you can kind of go back to those passages yourself, reach your own conclusions between you and the Lord, and act accordingly. Now, these assertions, they sort of build on one another, so it might make sense for you to get out a pen and jot them down. And I know we're kind of going through some dense material today, and that's not normal. Uh, But if we all get out our thinking caps and put them on, you know, we can make it through. And I think that will edify the church if we're able to examine these scriptures together. So first of all, notice with me that the Spirit has often confirmed his message and his messengers with miraculous signs. The Spirit has often confirmed his message and his messengers with miraculous signs. What I mean is that going back to the early days of God's people, the Holy Spirit has been working in similar ways to confirm his message and to confirm his messengers. And it's not just one or two passages in the New Testament. It's actually the the, the entire story of the Bible. He's been doing this since the beginning. Uh, So go back, for example, to the book of Exodus. Moses receives instruction on Mount Sinai regarding how to build a tabernacle. And uh, he collects an offering from the people. You remember this from a few years ago? He collects an offering from the people, and they're getting ready to build the tabernacle. Moses receives a pattern from the Lord. And then we're told in Exodus 31, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God gives Bezalel this supernatural ability to equip the people of God and to lead in the building of the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit's been doing that not since the founding of the church, but since way before then. Another example uh, is... Uh, the, the ministry of a man named Ezra. He doesn't say in the book of Ezra, I was given a spiritual gift. Here's how Ezra puts it. He says, uh, I was successful uh, because the good hand of my God was upon me. In other words, he was given a supernatural enabling from God to lead and care for the people of God. So on the one hand, From the very beginning, all the way going back to the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit has been ministering among the people of God to give us the abilities that we need to build up the community of faith. But on the other hand, the Spirit has worked. So these are kind of the normal ways, like they're not as supernatural seeming to us, right? But the the Holy Spirit has also, parallel with that, uh, ministered in a way that we would call miraculous, 
out of the ordinary, signs and wonders. Okay, and there are numerous examples of this, and they all share something in common. See if you can pick it out. Think about Moses, for example. God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 3, you're going to speak on my behalf in front of Pharaoh the king. And you're going to tell him, I, I am said, these are my people, let my people go. And then in Exodus 4, Moses, he hears this commission. And you remember how Moses responds initially. He's not a fan of this uh, idea. And so he raises an objection in uh, chapter 4. Here's what he says. He says, Lord, they're just not going to believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So think about what Moses is dealing with. He's supposed to go in front of the king and say, the Lord said, let my people go. And what's the king going to say? You're just a guy. I don't believe anything you say. And so Moses raises this objection to the Lord. Who's going to believe that the Lord actually sent me? And so in response, the Lord gives Moses a sign. He tells him that if Pharaoh doesn't listen to him, then he can throw down his staff and his staff is going to become a serpent. You remember this passage from Exodus chapter 4? Uh, so what's, who's doing that? Who's giving Moses this miraculous sign? Well, it's the Spirit of God, right? It's the Holy Spirit of God who gives this sign. In fact, all of the subsequent mighty acts of God, these terrible plagues in the book of Exodus work the same way. God actually comes out and says, here's why I'm giving these plagues, so that Pharaoh might know that I am the Lord. That's the purpose. Fast forward to the ministries of Elijah and his protege, Elisha, in 1 Kings. These men experienced miracles and signs and wonders all the time. The most famous moment in this time period was when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. So here he is on top of the mountain. The whole episode is set up in a way to sort of, uh, it's sort of a test to answer the question of whether I am or Baal, this false idol, is the greater God. And, and God sends fire down on the altar and, and consumes Elijah's sacrifice. And what's the result? What did the people say? What's their response? When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Or think about the ministry of the prophet Isaiah in the life of King Hezekiah. He tells Hezekiah that the Lord is going to uh, heal him from this disease. And in order to prove it to him, he tells him that the shadow on the sundial is going to go backwards. So it's this powerful sign. Okay, you cannot make shadows go backwards. That would involve a lot of cosmic movement that I don't personally understand. That's a big deal. And why does he do that? As a sign to show that Isaiah is speaking the word of God. And there are numerous examples in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But we sometimes miss the details of what Jesus says and how he does these things, how his power operates as the Son of God. He's ministering as the human Messiah in the power of the Holy Spirit. So for for example, uh, when the leaders of the Jews, they complain to Jesus and to each other about Jesus' ministry, and they say, you know what, he's casting out demons by the power of demons. And Jesus rebukes them. He has a lot of things to say in that moment, but one of the things he says is this. He says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So did you catch what each of these examples have in common? Uh, You've got a messenger sent from God. You've got someone commissioned by God. And then 
in order to validate and confirm that ministry of that messenger, God, the Holy Spirit, does these wonderful signs. He demonstrates in a powerful way, this is my messenger, this is my message. And then people believe and they agree with the message. So the point I'm making is that from the very beginning and all the way through the Bible, the Holy Spirit has always given abilities to his people for the sake of his saving work. But one of the ways that the Holy Spirit ministers is he does these wonderful signs in order to confirm his message and his Messenger, And I hope you can see that for yourself. There are certainly many more similar examples we could cite, but that leads us to our next assertion. The Spirit confirmed the foundational ministry of Christ's apostles by distributing miraculous gifts. Now, follow the logic. This is something that the Holy Spirit has done since the beginning, right? And now, here come the apostles. And the Holy Spirit is going to do it again. He's going to confirm the message and the ministry of the apostles by distributing these miraculous gifts. So what I mean is that this ministry of the Holy Spirit to confirm a message and messenger is in operation in their ministry too. And this happens over and over again in the book of Acts. If you read it for yourself, you'll see. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls in power on the followers of Christ, and the men begin speaking in languages that they themselves do not know. And what's the result of the men speaking in tongues? Uh, The result is 3,000 people hear the gospel and believe and repent and are baptized, and they're added to the church. So God, the Holy Spirit, confirms the message of the apostle Peter through the, the operation of signs and wonders. Uh, In the next two chapters, it happens again. Peter commands a lame man to be healed. Here's a man who's been lame for his entire life. Peter commands him. He says, rise up and walk. And what happens? They gain an audience before all of the crowds gathered there in Jerusalem for the feast and before the rulers of the people. And Peter is able to preach the gospel because of that wonderful sign. The same type of thing happens in Acts chapter 9 when Peter raises a man from eight years of paralysis. The result is immediate. The people see the man and they hear the message and they turn to the Lord. Philip has a similar experience to Peter. I'm just trying to give you more examples of the same dynamic at play. Look at Acts chapter 8. Uh, uh, Philip is there in Acts chapter 8. He's preaching in Samaria. So this is a totally different region. He's not preaching in Jerusalem. He's in Samaria. And we're told that the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what what was being said by Philip when? When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So, so closely are these signs and wonders associated with the apostles' ministry that the writer to the Hebrews actually refers to them in terms of the apostolic ministry. This is the passage that Gwen read earlier in the service. He says, The message of the gospel was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Okay, who's that? It was the apostles, right? That foundational apostolic ministry. While God also bore witness... By signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what is the Holy Spirit doing? He's confirming his message. He's confirming his messengers, the apostles. Paul speaks the same way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He reminds the Corinthian church that his message comes from the Lord. 
stating that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. Notice how closely he associates his apostolic ministry with the signs and the wonders and the mighty works. Now, that's not to say that the Holy Spirit only granted miraculous gifts to the apostles. The only point I'm trying to make is that in large part, when the Holy Spirit granted signs and wonders and other miraculous gifts to the early church, the purpose of those gifts was to confirm the message of the apostles and to establish their authority at a time when the foundation of the church was being laid. So why did the Holy Spirit give miraculous gifts? Often, not always, but often, it was to confirm the foundational ministry of Christ's apostles. And that leads us to assertion number three. The apostles' foundational ministry is complete. The apostles' foundational ministry is complete. Now, for many believers, this is really the heart of the issue, isn't it? Uh, If we miss this, this is where we start to make assumptions about people that just aren't helpful. This is probably the most critical assertion to establish from Scripture. So think about this with me. The gospel writers are clear that there are 12 apostles. So, for example, look at Luke chapter 6, verse 13, in which we're told that Jesus appointed how many? Twelve, whom he named apostles. Twelve apostles. In Acts chapter 1, remember what happens in Acts chapter 1. There's not 12 anymore, there's how many? In the beginning of the chapter. There are 11, right? Because Judas had betrayed the Lord and killed himself, so there are now 11 apostles, and the The apostles that remain, they feel the need to remedy this situation. They feel there needs to be 12. And so, uh, by the way, it's also in Acts 1 that the qualifications of an apostle are described. An apostle is someone who walked with Jesus from the time of his baptism three years earlier to the time of his ascension. And again, there are only 12, and that's tied to the fact that there are 12 patriarchs, 12 sons of Jacob. God is kind of following that promise-shaped pattern over and over again in Scripture. Uh, Here's another passage in the book of Revelation. John describes the new Jerusalem, a city that has how many foundations? Twelve. And whose names are written on the twelve foundations? The apostles. Now, there's one exception to this, namely the apostle Paul. And, And Paul knows he's the exception. He calls himself the least of all apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, one untimely born. He comes after the others. But in that passage and in the opening passage of Galatians, he confirms what, a, what an apostle is. He, he got his message, he got his ministry, not from some guy out there, but from Jesus himself. So he had, a, he had an encounter with Jesus after Jesus had already ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he's an apostle because he got that message directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now why is it that there are only 12 and then later the apostle Paul? Well, the reason why there is this limited number of apostles is because the apostles had a job to do, and that job is complete. They had a job to do, and that job is complete. Uh, Their job, their ministry, was to lay a foundation for the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. We see this in passages like Ephesians chapter 2. What is the role of the apostles? They lay the foundation. We're building on top of the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And what's our job? To 
jackhammer up that foundation and rebuild another foundation? No, what's our job? It's to build on top of the foundation that's already been laid. And so the apostles' job was to lay that foundation, and guess what they've already done? They've completed the foundation. So their apostolic ministry is complete. That's why they're in heaven now, and we don't have any more that were only 12 plus Paul, because their particular ministry was complete. Objection. But Jake, there are other people, I know this because I study the Bible, there are other people in the New Testament who are called apostles. True. But keep in mind, the word apostle is not always used in a technical sense. It didn't start out as a religious word. We hear the word apostle and we think that's a Christian word. It wasn't originally a Christian word. It was just a word. And so what you have to pay attention to in these examples is what does the word apostle mean? It means somebody who's sent out on the authority of someone who's sending them, right? And so what, who, who is sending that person out? That's the question. And so, for example, Barnabas is called an apostle, but if you look at the details, he's an apostle of the church in Antioch. He's sent out on the authority of the church in Antioch. He's not an apostle directly of the Lord Jesus Christ. Epaphroditus is called an apostle in Ephesians chapter 2, or Philippians chapter 2, but he's an apostle of the church in Philippi. He's sent out with the authority of the church in Philippi. He's not an apostle directly of the Lord Jesus Christ with Christ's authority like the 12 apostles. So if you pay attention to the details of Scripture, you'll see that only the 12 and Paul are called apostles of Jesus Christ. Only these men have the foundational apostolic ministry. And by the way, on this point, both cessationists and many continuationists agree. For example, and I know I'm moving fast here, but this is so critical. Wayne Grudem, uh, he's a committed continuationist, well-known to be. He's a theologian. He says this, an apostle is an office, not a gift, and the office of apostle does not continue today. So even though he's a continuationist, he says that that apostolic office does not continue. And if it's true that the apostolic ministry of foundation building was completed when the apostles passed from the scene, then we're left with our next assertion, and here it is. The Spirit's foundational ministry is complete as well. The Spirit's foundational ministry is complete as well. Now, before you walk out of the building and get angry, um, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not making the point that the Holy Spirit is somehow restricted today in a way that he wasn't restricted back during the early church. It's not what I'm saying. Sometimes this is where the conversation goes. I often hear people reason that if we don't see the Holy Spirit doing the same things today that he was doing in the early church, there must be something wrong with our church. Like, why don't we see people being raised from the dead? Well, it must be because we're just not spiritual people. I object to that line of reasoning. I don't agree with that at all. It's not, it's not communicated maybe intentionally, but it is certainly implied. And, and, and what I want to say is, yes, the Holy Spirit is as free as he's ever been, and, and he only, always will be free. He's God. And, and yes, we live in the age of the new covenant, a time when God has promised to pour out his spirit on all flesh. But we have to remember and rejoice in the fact that he has already done the foundation work of the building. That is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. 
that this anxiety that we have to almost compete with the book of Acts, like, man, wouldn't it be cool if we saw more ministry happen than happened with Peter? That's weird. We don't have to compete with the apostolic ministry. We ought to be grateful that we don't have to go back and relay the foundation that's already been laid. We don't have to start from scratch like the apostles of the early church. You say, okay, well, the Holy Spirit's free, but his foundation work is complete. What kind of ministry does the Holy Spirit have today? The kind of ministry, the kind of gifts that he gives us today, he's free to give us whatever gifts he wants, but the gifts that he's going to give us, you know what they are? Whatever is most useful to build up the church today. He's a wise master builder. You've all watched the progress of this building to our south, our new life center. So just picture this in your mind's eye. Earlier this year, we all watched as the site was prepared, and the excavators were out there digging, and there was a a bulldozer and a backhoe, and uh, we had to pour a foundation. And that that meant that we uh, needed an excavator, we needed a bulldozer, we had a truck out here just to drill holes for the piers, and concrete trucks, and a pump truck, and that was really, really cool. I enjoy seeing that come together. It was amazing to watch those guys at work, but guess what? You know this, the foundation's already poured. So you know what happened to the backhoe, and the bulldozer, to the excavator? You know what happened to the pump truck and the concrete trucks? They're gone. They don't need to be there anymore. Because what what do we need to happen for that building to be completed? We need different tools. We need ladders and lifts and other things that are going to help the next phase of the process go forward. And, And what I'm saying is that in the beginning, we were all impressed with this project because we got to watch the wonderful tools, the, the cool trucks working, but at some point, those trucks drive away, and instead of being impressed with all the tools, we get to be impressed with the building. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church. He starts out with laying the foundation, and since that time, he's been building this wonderful structure so that the work of the church in the world is spreading to all the peoples and nations and languages, and we get to say, look at what God has done. Look at what he's doing in the world to build a sanctuary for the Holy Spirit. There are local churches all over the place. The gospel's growing by the day. There's not a lot of excavation going on because that's not the phase we're at. What I'm saying is that the Holy Spirit is so wise. He doesn't just give gifts randomly with no purpose. He doesn't just give us gifts because they're cool and because they impress people. He gives us what we need so that his gospel may advance and so that his church might be built up as a holy and pleasing temple for himself. Which gifts is he going to give us? Whatever gifts we need to build up the church. Whatever gifts he wants to give us so that the church can be built up and he might be exalted. So go back to our original question. Are all of the gifts mentioned in the New Testament valid for use today? Let me put it this way, and this is our last assertion. And then I'm going to try to draw out some practical entailments. The Spirit's ministry today is not equal to but analogous to his ministry in the early church. The Spirit's ministry today is not equal, but analogous to his ministry in the early church. See, the foundation's already laid. The Holy Spirit doesn't give 
the tools to build another foundation, but then to take it a step further and say, okay, well, then he's never going to give any miraculous gifts. I'm not going to go there because the Holy Spirit might give whatever gifts are needed to build onto the foundation today. So what that means is he isn't going to give us a prophetic gift in the church in order to validate the truth of the message of the apostles because that work's already done, but he may give us something like a prophetic gift to the church for some other reason. He's not going to give us the gift of tongues today in order to validate the message and the ministry of the apostles because that work's already done, but he may give us something like the gift of tongues for some other reason. See, uh, I'm just not ready to say that the Holy Spirit's miraculous gifts are over and done with. It's just that he's doing different things because we're not laying the foundation, we're building on top of the foundation. I'm not ready to say that when someone comes to the elders for healing in obedience to the New Testament and we pray over him and we anoint him with oil and then he is gloriously healed, that that isn't a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. It absolutely is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And I want to rejoice in that and I want to praise God for it because of what God has done working miraculously in his church. Is it the same in purpose and nature as the gifts given to the apostles and their ministry partners? No, it's not exactly the same, but it's certainly similar. It's not equal, but it is analogous. And whether you call yourself a cessationist or a continuationist, you didn't even know you could call yourself that until today, some of you. But no matter what you call yourself, late for dinner, whatever, you'll find it, if you're willing to take into account the teachings of Scripture, you'll find it hard to disagree that while the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not the same exact thing as what he was doing in the apostles, it's certainly similar. The New Testament is uniquely authoritative. Continuationists can agree with this. We don't need a new New Testament. We don't need new apostles. We don't need a new foundation. Anybody trying to rebuild a foundation is going to do violence to the one that's already laid. We've got a foundation. But committed cessationists, on the other hand, who love the Bible would agree that while the foundation work is complete, the building continues. And sometimes the Holy Spirit is going to display his unmistakable power in ways we can't explain, nor should we try. Even cessationist theologians like Paul Enns uh, in his well-known book, The Moody Handbook of Theology, says something similar. He says, although the gift of miracles, the ability to perform miraculous acts, ceased with the apostolic age, that is not to say miracles cannot and do not occur today. So what I'm saying is that the Holy Spirit is present in his church to empower us to fulfill everything he desires of us and for us. His ministry today is not equal to his ministry among the apostles, but it is analogous. It's similar. As Paul prays in 1 Corinthians 1-7, so we pray today that we would not be lacking in any gift. Until when? Until the Lord Jesus comes back. Not just until we have the New Testament, but until the day he returns. Now, given that this is the case, allow me to leave you with some practical takeaways. First of all, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, I I know this type of thing seems like inside baseball to you. But what I want to just broaden out and say is this. It's our prayer that the Holy Spirit powerfully gloriously, in whichever way he wants, 
gets your attention and convinces you that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the only way to be saved. And the Holy Spirit has the power to do that. You can hear the testimony of dozens of other people in this room who would say the very thing. They would say, I just, I was going my own way, the Holy Spirit got my attention, and I realized I was a sinner, I believed, I repented, and and now I'm born again, and I know for sure that I'm justified, and that I am part of God's family, that my sins are forgiven, and that I will spend eternity with him. I know it for sure. We pray that you'll be dissatisfied with the emptiness of the world, And that in your moment of frustration, you'll come to realize by the power of the Holy Spirit that the answers you seek can only be found in Christ. We pray that you'll feel the powerful conviction that you are a sinner, God's enemy, and that today is the day to repent and receive the free gift of forgiveness through the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to know that. We pray that the Holy Spirit demonstrates to you that the idols of your life, those things that you're trusting in, are empty and mute and powerless, and that the God of heaven is pursuing you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to listen to his voice. Today is the day to turn to him and be saved and rescued from judgment that will certainly fall on all those who say no to Jesus. Second practical takeaway for those of us who are believers. We must appreciate the completed, perfect, wise work of foundation building that the Holy Spirit has accomplished in his church through the giving of the, of the New Testament. I, the New Testament we must hold in the highest regard as the written word of God. God's word in human word. There is no other foundation to be laid than what's already been laid. The words of this book are pure and precious, and they do not need to be fixed or repaired or updated or in any way uh, changed so that we can move forward as a church. God gave us exactly what we needed in this book, and that foundation-building process is complete. He gave us the words and the teachings of Christ himself, so we have only to open and read and rely on the illuminating power of the Spirit to understand what is written therein. Practical takeaway number three. We must learn to love and look for the powerful workings of the Holy Spirit in the church today. He may do things that we've never seen before. He may do things in a way that we don't expect. He may do things that kind of make us step back and say, I don't know what's going on. Because he is the Lord of his church. This is his temple. And whatever he's going to, whatever he thinks is going to be most beneficial for the building up of his church, that's what he's going to give to his church. And we need to learn to love that and look for it. And I'll leave you with this especially as we continue this study over the next few weeks. Let's do this. Let's commit to this. Pray to the Holy Spirit and ask that he might grant us whatever gifts will most build up the church of Jesus Christ. Like, have you ever prayed that before? Have you ever gone to the Holy Spirit and asked him, whatever gifts you want to give me, 
Whatever gifts you want to give me that will help this church be built up, that will help the universal church be built up, that will help your name be recognized as, as sovereign, that, you, that will glorify your name, whatever gifts you want to give me, would you give me those gifts? Whatever it is, you've got a blank check with my life. You can do whatever you want with it. I surrender all. Would you please just give me the gifts that will most build up the church? It's true that the Holy Spirit's work today Yeah, it's a little different than the work that he was doing in the early church. But he is no less present, no less zealous for the souls of men. He cares for us, and he intends to give us everything we need so that we might not come behind in any gift until the day the trumpet sounds and we hear the voice of God from heaven and Christ descends and receives us to himself. He's going to take care of us until that very day. So let's pray that he would do that very thing. Would you pray with me now? Father, I, again, want to thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, we recognize that you're present with us now. You've given us new life. You've entered into fellowship with us, even though we don't deserve it. Because of the blood of Christ, you count us precious to yourself. And Father, we praise you for the ways that you have gifted your church. You've given us everything that we, we need so that we might not come behind in any spiritual gift until the day of the Lord. And so, Father, we want to, in this moment, just take all of who we are, our body, our, our soul, our mind, our hearts, and present those bodies as a living sacrifice to you in this moment and say, you know, this is a little scary, but whatever you want to do with my life right now, however you want to use me in your church, I'm not going to make any assumptions. I'm not going to give you my priorities, one, two, and three. I'm just going to open myself up to the priorities that you have. I'm going to open myself up to the gifts that you want to give me. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give Indian Creek Baptist Church a wealth of spiritual gifts, of mighty wonders, of skills that are both mundane and miraculous, of burdens that... Uh, fill our vision with ministry possibilities. And Father, that you would use your people that you've gifted to reach this community for Christ and beyond. And Father, in this moment, I pray that you would begin to make clear to us what those spiritual gifts are. And as we study this over the next few weeks, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name.